Bien Tre wasn't incorporated into what later became canonized or what later became the, the mainstream medicine that we used Huangdi as the symbol of is that he really, he or the clan or the people around him, they really represented an earlier branch of Chinese medicine. He represented this part of the medicine that was much more closely related to these mantic techniques, whether it was fasting, meditation, talisman, and so on. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. If you have your health, you have everything. I remember my grandparents saying this to me as I was growing up, and even into the years when I thought I was grown up, but well, you might remember the hubris of youth as well. I remember thinking that I did not have everything. I didn't have the nice car that they drove. I didn't have a business that supported myself and gave service to a community. I didn't have the sense of purpose that they seemed to have. I didn't realize what they meant was when you have your health, you have the capacity to do anything. I didn't get it that when you have your health, the world is full of opportunity because you have the transformational potential within you to do something meaningful with your life. Having health didn't mean you had a comfortable material life and all of your wishes and hopes were granted. It meant I had the blessing of a good enough mind and a body to work stuff out, enough chi and resiliency to get through hard lessons, and enough optimism to take a chance and enough fortitude to survive the failures. Health is not a thing. It's a potential a capacity, a kind of oddly yin-yang polarized invitation and challenge. My grandparents in their day were often excluded, but they did not feel oppressed. They built and flourished as they could. They created something out of nothing. And enough something that I could misinterpret, if you have your health, you have everything, to mean if I have my health, I should have everything of which I'm desirous. What I've come to discover is that if I have my health, I have opportunity, but opportunity does not pay the rent, put food on the table, or give a sense of well-being in life. Opportunity is a chance. In Chinese, the characters that represent opportunity are ji hui. Ji means a crucial moment. Hui means meeting, gathering, or a chance. Together, they mean opportunity and remind us of the fleeting and ever-changing nature of these precious moments. And it is our health that allows us to recognize and seize these pivotal moments. What we do with those moments, the trajectory that it puts us on, that can take years to reveal. Very little in life that creates sustainability and value comes instantly. And it is our health that allows us to persevere. Health does not give us everything, but it does allow us the opportunity to discover and create. It allows us to discover our true measure. In a moment, we're going to sit down with Shelley Oaks and discuss one of the lesser known members of the Chinese medical pantheon, the bird-headed god, Bian Chue. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members, 
All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. 
Bientria harkens back to a time of myth and magic, and if it was not for a cache of scrolls that were found while digging a subway in Sichuan province, we might not be having this conversation today. But Shelley's PhD is on Bientria, so get ready for a wild ride through history and culture. I find it curious that bird-headed gods show up in so many places, from ancient Egypt to the Pacific Northwest to South America, India, and Indonesia. Let's get into today's conversation with Shelley on the mythic master of medicine, Bien Chue. Shelley Oaks, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the show again. We spoke last summer when COVID was blowing up big time all over the world. You and Tom were on the show. Uh, There's some amazing work that you guys did with compiling resources for COVID. Well, we thought we had to do something. Well, you did, and it was wonderful. And uh, all y'alls that haven't checked out that show, if you have interest in the methods that were used in China at that time, it's... uh, It's over on the website, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're not here to talk about modern uses of Chinese medicine. We're here to go way, way back into like mythic times, really, and talk about bian Yes. So I'm psyched to do that. But before we do, I'm curious to know, I mean, you're from Kentucky originally or something like that, aren't you? Is it Kentucky that you're (laughs) from? I am. I'm from middle america i'm i'm from louisville kentucky from louisville louisville yeah you're close enough to know that that's the way we say it i wouldn't dare say louisville no <laughs> when i'm there people think i'm from out of town that's right but now you're in beijing how did you wind your way from louisville to beijing mm, that's a really good question well i have a narrative that i can make coherent and and make sense at this point but the, the truth, like many people's lives, is, is much more accidental <laughs> and either, you know, serendipity or just uh, pure coincidence. But essentially, I was flying. I'll start there. So, Shelly Oaks, I'm uh, 19 years old, flying from New York to Munich to visit a boyfriend. You know, it's love that compels us to do these things often, right? Uh, yes, so I'm that, that has launched from... so many of us in so many directions. <laughs> right? You know, some relationship with someone somewhere in, in the world. <laughs> and the reason I was doing that, to go back even further, is I went to school for a year at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. First year, they gave my family a lot of financial aid. Second year, they gave significantly less, which I found out decades later, uh, was not an uncommon experience with those kind of private schools there in the late 80s. So I couldn't go back to school the second year. And for that reason, that's why I was sort of free and easy and looking for other adventures and other learning experiences. And being 18, 19 years old, I thought, I'll just do this first, whatever I wanted to do that was right in front of me. And then, you know, I'll figure school out later. So there I was in New York, Uh, flying to Munich, and there was a snowstorm. And there were all of these businessmen from from Munich that were very irate and wanted to fly right away. And so Pan Am, an airline that doesn't exist anymore, uh, they asked for volunteers, you know, who's willing to wait until tomorrow. And so there were three of us, actually, 
all between 18 and 22. We raise our hands and they say, yeah, great. So we go over and then the person at the counter says, well, you know, you, you bought student tickets. I bought this $250 one-way ticket to Munich. And she said, oh, well, you know, really, we should only just give you 50 bucks as compensation. But she looked at our young faces, and I wish I could find this person because it changed my life. She looked at our young faces, and she said, oh, I'll give it to you anyway. So she gave us a free voucher round trip anywhere in the world that Pan Am flies. Wow. So we called my friend, and I said, Karen, can we stay with you? We have no place to stay. She said, sure. And I said, we got this free ticket. I'm going to India. And she said, India, why India? And I said, I just want to go someplace completely different. Mm-hmm. Fair enough, right? Yep. Louisville, Kentucky, yep. wherever we, we ended up in India. Uh, so we flew to Munich. And then later I ended up in, uh, we did go to India. We spent three months traveling there. And then I ended up in, in Taiwan after traveling around Asia for a few months, half a year. And I, I got really interested in Chinese Partially because I was so tired of just traveling and looking at things superficially. So I found myself in, in Taiwan in 1989. Very easy, good time to be there. Uh, as an American native English speaker, you made 500 NT an hour for private lessons, which was, was very good money, then 300 for classes, you know, and, uh, and so I just sank into Chinese. I can still remember when I bought my first uh, cassette recorder and my first books. Mm -hmm. And I really did that just out of curiosity. I I didn't have, of course, any any plan for sure. And I I also didn't really have preconceived notions. You know, later I would certainly meet people who came over from from Brown and, and University of Michigan and French universities and so on who came with this sort of views already of what they expected to see in Taiwan. But for better and for worse, I was seeing everything with fresh eyes because I knew nothing about China or Taiwan from from growing up. And at that moment in uh, the late 80s, early 90s in, in Taiwan, it was a time when the whole society was asking itself a lot of questions. You know, what is traditional culture? What is modern culture? Who do we want to be? And intense debates about language. Taiwanese doesn't have a script. And so there was debate about, well, let's give it one. I mean, we, we invented baihua. In other words, we've made, we created ways to write the vernacular or colloquial speech in the north of China into script. Why can't we do that here in the south with a, a different dialect, as it were? And then other people said, no, the beauty of it is that it doesn't have a script. So, so that was, that was my entry into Chinese culture and anything related to China. I, I love that. I have found in my life that it's what has come from the periphery that has always held the most meaning and taken me down the most interesting paths, right? There's all those things that you're supposed to do, where you think you're supposed Mm. to do, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder, or I'm going to get such and such a degree. There's a way that the world and our family tells us how we're supposed to be. Or sometimes we just get an idea, and we go, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. And you start down the path, and then your airplane gets canceled, I mean, yes, I just love it. The airplane gets canceled and you meet a person who says, I'm going to give you a free ticket anyway. And your life is completely different. That's right. Yes. 
So I, yeah, I, I, I'm just wondering people listening to this at this moment in time, if they're coming up with their own story. Yeah. If it wasn't for that angel that showed Mm. up at a particular crossroad, I would not be the person I am today. Yes. Some particular moment of, of serendipity and then your own willingness, which sometimes seems crazy in retrospect, right? <laughs> but to, to, to take the plunge, you know, to jump off the cliff. Yes. And so this is, this is where the Chinese word yuan fun. Yeah, very much so. Makes so much sense because it often gets translated as fate. Mm-hmm. But my sense of it is that it's fate plus willingness. It's not fate like like it's going to grab you by the scruff of your neck and say you're going over here. It's an opportunity that arises in a moment hmm. and something in you says yes. Right. Something that's meant to be, but you still have to accept it. You have to accept it. You have to give your own permission. Right. There's, there's a bit of agency in that moment. Another aspect of my own uh, story, thinking about studying Chinese just because I, I wanted to, and actually even later to, to a certain degree, studying Chinese medicine, although that actually led to a career and that was the idea from the beginning. So that was more practical than studying what I was doing before, say, politics or comparative literature or philosophy or something. But every degree that I've gotten has been something less than a practical, uh, calculated decision. And I've had a chance to, to reflect upon that living in China. I've been in Beijing for almost 14 years now. And I know a number of people who are, who are the same age, which is fascinating. Uh, for example, I know people that uh, in the, the early 90s, when they were also young, they were in Beijing in, uh, in rock bands, you know, local people, and just talking about what we thought was possible for our lives. And I have to say, even though I grew up in a working class, very you know, ordinary family. My, my parents are high school graduates. My mom went back to school later and got an associate's degree. So I think she also uh, modeled that for me of continuing to study and really going through some hardships. So thank you, mom, for that. <laughs> but I realized that I grew up in the fat years in the States. I was a child in the 70s and 80s. And so even in my extended family, we were living through times where it was easy to make a living. It was easy to have the the mini American dream in terms of uh, buying a house and you could get a mortgage and having two cars and going on vacation and maybe even have a par- having a parent at home who didn't work. So I, I, I know now that that very much affected my mentality, even though I certainly didn't come from wealth, I came from a sense of security that the collective really affects your times, really affect your individual mentality and what you think is possible. That's a great point. I came just a little earlier than you did. But yes, there's there's that sense, an underlying sense of security. It doesn't mean you don't have to work hard. It doesn't mean that You've got everything, but you've got an opportunity to do things like following your curiosity. There's enough of a base of stability that you can take a leap into something that you don't know. At least a a belief. Uh, At different points, people have assumed that I had 
support or something behind me. And uh, somehow it so far hasn't really been <laughs> my my fate, as it were, to to have that. But there was a certain level of confidence. And I know part of that comes from uh, having the good fortune to have been born in a developed country at a time when the country was doing well. And so I didn't have the fears and insecurities that I see in people here. So as you know, you've, you've lived here. Even people who have made money, even if it's not the sort of, you know, rags to riches, they've made a lot of money quickly, just the sort of ordinary, went to school, worked hard, and now they're a professional in some field, people feel very insecure. They feel very afraid, uh, often, of losing that money and that security. So I think that's, that's just something to reflect upon now as I am a parent and thinking about the the circumstances my daughter is growing up in, which is kind of a mix of the two, really. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot to be said for having enough security, but not too much, so that yes. you also have to scratch it out. You have to apply yourself. You can't just sit back and say, okay, I'm given this, and okay, that's great, whatever. You know, you have to like put your heart in, and you have to push. You have to take some risks. I think that's very helpful. Yes, I think in some ways that was a, a blessing and kind of drawing off of that, I've, um, I've reflected quite a bit about education, you know, my own and uh, just being in China because my daughter goes to public schools. And I do think that if the, the educational system in the U.S. works for you, one of the things that it, that it gives people and one of the things that I think I've, I've, I've benefited from is true curiosity, Mm-hmm. When I when I wrote my dissertation on on Bianchere, I wasn't sure. You know, I went through the whole process of getting a PhD here. I didn't know that that would lead to anything practical. I suppose that's not unusual. But I had a driving curiosity and a certain kind of of willpower, really, because I was I wrote my dissertation at one of the more sort of challenging periods of my life. I had a small child who wasn't sleeping through the night. She was three when I graduated and she just was, she reached sleep maturity late. Uh, and I was working to to support myself. And then I was trying to write this dissertation. So the only real solution was to get up early in the morning, which had never been my habit before. But I would, I'd go to bed, you know, at nine o'clock with her and then I would get up at five. She would wake me up a couple of times in the middle of the night, but I would get up at five, make a cup of coffee and the house would be quiet for a couple of hours. And I had this huge desk that I bought from Ikea and I had all these pieces of paper on the wall because I wanted to not forget different strands of the dissertation I was writing. And then also a couple of pieces, you know, words of encouragement <laughs> to myself. And and I would get up and I at least had two hours from five to seven, that last sort of eight months to, to finish the dissertation. And that worked. I would, I would sneak in uh, pieces here and there otherwise. But I think that what I hope for my own child is that she also has that, that, that kind of drive that you just really have questions that you want to answer and you want to create something because writing is very creative. Yes. So I hope that she uh, has that. Hello everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. 
a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, you've certainly had an opportunity to model it for her, so we'll see what the future brings with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if she remembers, but I told her. <laughs> so, Bien Tre, now there's a really practical mm -hmm. aspect of Chinese medicine to investigate. Whatever led you to Bien Tre, besides your unending curiosity, what, what opened that up for you? Well... The truth is that it was a topic suggested to me. So I learned a lot of things about how the Chinese academic world works and the sort of pros and cons of it, I guess you'd say, while I was doing my PhD. So if you have a good supervisor, which I had, I was very important. I was very fortunate. I chose uh, Liu Changhua and he, he accepted me. I chose the head of the, of the research institute for medical history and medical literature, which is only, I should say, Chinese medical history and literature. It's not uh, history of medicine in general. And he suggested this, this topic. He said, why don't you write about Bien Tre and how he somehow is related to bird totems or to the totem culture of the, the areas where we find his images. And he gave me this topic uh, for several reasons. One is he thought it was important, which turned out to be absolutely prescient. We'll get to that. But a couple of years later, well, from the time he gave me the topic uh, to when the, the archaeological findings were published, it was probably more like four years. But he he felt that something in the future would be discovered about, about Bientria, and he was right. But he chose this topic about totems, which turned out to be a rather sort of outdated way of talking about religion or beliefs or, you know, anything in, in anthropology. So that was a bit of a challenge, but you could always investigate it from another angle. He felt that, first of all, I would be more objective, for better or for worse. You know, he thought I would be more objective because I don't have the same cultural background as my Chinese colleagues. He thought that I could just deal with the topic of religion in a more objective way. So that was an uh, interesting assumption. And frankly, he felt that writing about a topic like that wouldn't hurt my career. Because that's a, a sort of unusual topic if you're in history of medicine here, and there might come a point in the future where it wouldn't really be to your advantage to have written about something 
related to primitive beliefs, as, as they're so called here, or uh, religious beliefs and so on, or shamanism. So that was the other, the other reason. So he gave me this topic and he said, well, you might have to really do some digging. And I said, okay, not, not really knowing <laughs> what he, what he meant. And, uh, and that's how it began. Wow. So you used the word totem. Yes. Tell me more about that. Well, when we talk about uh, being true, there's a whole set of phenomena or different kinds of evidence about this figure of of Bianchea. So the main record and the one that most people are, are familiar with is in the record of the court historian, the, or sometimes called the, uh, the grand scribes records, where you have these, these stories, these stories of three stories of a Bianchea who was a physician. But besides that, you have all of these mentions of him and it might be one sentence or just several sentences, but he's mentioned in 15 different medical and non-medical books before the Tang Dynasty. And then perhaps it's suggested that Bian Xue is actually uh, Qin Yue Ren, who's the author of the classic of difficulties, right? The, the 81 difficulties. And then you have this evidence that there was either a, a clan, that's a suggestion, uh, a medical lineage, or just one extraordinary master teacher um, in these these areas of Shandong province where you find these tomb reliefs. You find these carvings within tombs that show a half-human, half-bird figure with something in his hand that looks like maybe a, a bian shi, maybe one of the early stones that were used for healing, or maybe some type of stone needle. And so one of the main questions then is, how do you put all these things together? How do you get from this half-human, half-bird figure uh, that's found only in this area of China, but found on maybe four different sites, let's say. Some of them are disputed, <laughs> but uh, found in these, these different areas. And he's been clearly identified as being related to Bianchea because there's at least one that has words, that has a sort of description next to it. And then now you have this archaeological evidence. They were building a subway outside of Chengdu in Sichuan province, and uh, they stumbled upon something, the people that were digging, and they said, okay, we got to call the archaeological bureau in, in Chengdu. And the, the bureau there actually gets 300 calls a year. And so someone went out to look at it, and they really they had the knowledge and the intuition. I've actually met this group of people and that they had the foresight to say, no, I'm sorry, you need to stop and you need to really let us dig this one out properly. And it turned out that there are 976 bamboo slips, just these little thin slips of bamboo that have medical writing on them. And there are five of them most of them are damaged, actually, but there are five of them that basically say, Bian Chue said, just like we find in, in the Yellow Emperor's classic, right? It says, Huang Di said, or Chibo said. Uh, it says, Bian Chue said. And so this is really incredible evidence taken together with all the, the contents, right, of what the, the scrolls 
tell us that there was some kind of medical lineage related to a Biedre. That is such a fortunate find. Yeah, it was extraordinary. And actually, there's so many different pieces of it. Another is that the particular infrared technology that they used had only been recently invented or become widely available because these sticks, when they when they come out of the tomb, you know, they, they literally just look like a pile of muddy sticks. I mean, people knew what they were, but you can't read them until you clean them off and you use this infrared to see the writing on them because the writing is ink. It's not like they're carved or something. You know, the writing and is it's ink. thousands of years old and it's been buried. And because the grave had been robbed once, some of the contents sank further. They were wet, and they, but they were just moist enough to be preserved without being destroyed. So we could do a whole, a whole show about that. But that's also part of the Bientre evidence. And then in addition to that, you find temples to Bientre all over China. And you know, some of them claim to be quite old. Some of them are probably more recent. But that certainly at least tells you something about the status of Bientre within folk culture. And I went to one of these temple festivals, which was actually um, a little bit more complicated than I expected. <laughs> so the festival is at a Bantra temple. This is in, uh, in a place called Necho in Hobe. And it's, we can rely, very reliably say that it's been a temple dedicated to Bantra since the Song Dynasty. And there are some of these sort of uh, stone steels with writing that were preserved during the Cultural Revolution because the people in the neighboring villages took them. You know, they knew that Red Guards or other people were coming. They took them and they hid them. They buried them. And so then after everything sort of settled down again, they, they took them out. So we still, we still have these stones. So the temple has a, a festival every year for Bientre. And that's frankly why it's allowed to take place. And because, as you know, the government regulates uh, religion rather strictly, we'll say. And uh, so people come and, and that's what it's supposed to be for. But that's not what the people there will tell you that they're doing. <laughs> they're worshiping other le- uh, local deities in the temple rather than, than Bientre. Bientre is just sort of the site and the name, and you know maybe they'll go and burn some incense to him as well, but there's uh, a much more complex picture going on. But what's interesting is that when these festivals take place, there are still, even up till uh, today, I mean, I went there just maybe, well, actually now it's been maybe nine years ago, but they tell stories, these oral legends related to Bientre. So there's an oral history that goes with this that's come down over years and years and years. There's a way that people have been talking to each other. And when I first mentioned that to some of my colleagues, uh, because it's so hard to prove continuity, they were very skeptical. But I... But I persisted and I thought about it. I thought, you know, in Shandong province, for example, you have stories about fox fairies, other kinds of legends that are based on beliefs that persist. And some of those legends or versions of them are also probably 1,000 or 2,000 years old. That's not out of the realm of, of possibility. So you can't prove the continuity. But what's interesting is that 
some of the the oral tales clearly reflect the more mythological elements in the record of the court historian. So, for example, in the extant text that we have today, um, which was written in the first century BCE, right, it was compiled roughly first century BCE. It tells the story in the very beginning that Bientre was a sort of manager at an inn, and there was this mysterious patron. And he came in one day and he says, you know, I've been watching you and I think you're worthy. And I have these jin shu. Jin shu means secret books or, or we said jin fang or secret formulas, but it also means powerful. It's sort of two sides of the same coin. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to show them to you. And he gave him a drink and he said, uh, I want you to drink this. And after 30 days, you'll be able to see through people. And then the story goes that that's what he did and that's what happened. And then that's how uh, this Bientre in the first story becomes a healer. Well, in the oral legend, it's a little bit different. Bientre, which is still what he's called, he meets a uh, a Taoist. I mean, they, they call him that. He meets this sort of roving uh, Xian, this sort of immortal Taoist teacher, and he follows him and follows him into the, into the mountains and uh, he loses him. And then suddenly he appears behind him, you know, like in a movie or something. And he says, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give you these, these, these books, these scrolls, but you can't open them until after you go into a cave and you meditate for 30 days and you also drink this drink. So he goes in and he does, I guess, what a lot of us would do. You know, he opens them right away <laughs> and he doesn't wait. And he says, oh, they're blank. Of course they are. Of course they're blank because he hasn't done the work yet. You can't open the book until you have a certain kind of consciousness and then... You can see what's in the book. You can see. And in the story, that is what he does. Because I suppose they want to make it a complete, you know, moral allegory. <laughs> it could be just a warning tale, but it's more than that. It's a little bit more positive. <laughs> he, uh, he does. Do well, you know, I mean, these things it. are often a warning allegory, right? It often is a warning allegory. It's like, don't do this, right? You're going to get in trouble. But it's, it's, like, right. it's like Jewish people say, you're not supposed to say the name of God. Right. And as a kid growing up, it's like, ooh, I'm gonna hit by a lightning bolt. But no, it's not it's not that. It's just that if you try to name what's unnameable, you cut yourself off from everything that's available by that which is not named. Mm. Mm. You know, I've always loved that. Just Hashem. There was a, a couple of years in my life where I, I lived with a whole group of student students in a in a Jewish co-op, actually. And I always because I come from the Bible belt, as we've just been talking about. So I thought that's just a great way to say it. If you're if you're going to believe in this, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Isaiah, the the, the monolithic, the monotheistic God, to just right. say the name, you know, something that can't be yes. named. So it made much more sense than than you need a certain level of cultivation. And we talk about this all the time in our profession that we have to cultivate ourselves, and you know calligraphy and qigong i mean whatever but you know what what, what are, i mean those are the usual ways we talk about it but there is i suspect a, a refinement of spirit and a refinement of consciousness i'm not talking about good bad i'm just saying to be able to open a book mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. actually see what's in it because you can open a 
I think you've had this experience. We've all had the experience. We've read a certain book at a certain time and it, and it said something to us. And we open that book and we read it again 10 years mm-hmm. later. It's a whole different book. Right. Right. And some of my teachers used to say that about our Chinese medical classics. I mean, when I was going to school in California, she'd say, okay, I'm teaching you the, the Shanghai Lun and the Jingui now. You can, you can reference it. You can put it away, but really take it out again in three years and read it through. And you will understand it on a whole other level. And, and even something as simple as the Materia Medica or your basic book on acupuncture mm. points, you can bring those out again after 10 years of experience and it will tell you something else. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, Bien Chia, I, I've always loved that story about being able to see through a person so that you could see what's going on for a person. And, and the story that I got was the whole idea behind pulse diagnosis. It, it wasn't that, oh, he discovered pulse diagnosis, but that he could actually see what was going on with someone. But you can't tell somebody that I've got this like super x-ray vision because that's going to flip people out. So you do the pulse instead, right? It's like, I got this thing. It's in my hands. Oh, yeah, the kidney. I mean, he's like looking at the kidney. There is a passage that suggests that, yes, that that, that he is saying that it's from um, the pulse. He, in general, though, Bian Chia is part of a tradition, really, of people that had something we call uh, fang ji, or techniques. So the, the, the Li Ling, this uh, scholar at, at Beijing University here, who's done a lot of uh, what was originally very controversial work, actually, on sort of warring states or uh, spring and autumn period, what we might call shamans, diviners, adepts, and so on. Bintra was very much, at least that Bintra, <laughs> was very much a part of that tradition, people in possession of techniques. So I think part of why Bientre wasn't incorporated into what later became canonized or what later became the, the mainstream medicine that we use Huangdi as the symbol of is that he really, he or the clan or the people around him, they really represented an earlier branch of Chinese medicine as it later became sort of canonized. He represented this this part of the medicine that was much more closely related to these mantic techniques, whether it was fasting, meditation, talisman, and so on, even though we don't have very specific descriptions of that. You know, the descriptions of Bian are about him using stones, using hot compresses, using herbs, and things like that, but he very much comes yes. from that tradition. And we often hear about how Chinese medicine started with these more shamanistic practices. And, and lots of medicines had that. I mean, back in, you know, like Eastern Europe, the whole thing with protecting against the evil eye and curing against that and talismans and amulets and spells and all those kinds of things. It, it, it has, it kind of rhymes with this. And the thing that we have about Bien Trea too, this image of him this really curious image mm-hmm. of a human being with a bird head, right? <laughs> right? Which makes me think about 
like Northwest Native Americans, in some of the ceremonies they have, there's people with these big bird heads, you know, doing dances and ceremonies. And you've got ancient Egypt with Horus, mm-hmm. the bird-headed god. This, this kind of thing shows up in different places and at different mm-hmm. times. Right. And comparisons have definitely been made also even with Mayan culture, but with different regional cultures in, in China. Definitely they call it Nuo. There was there were there were certain kinds of ceremonies, shamanistic rituals um, in, in Dongbei in, in northern China, where people might have been wearing headdresses that made them look like birds. So this is a suggestion that this is just sort of a stylistic um representation of that but the question really is is this you're finding these these images and he's really a, a full except for the human head and the human with a with a hat and a human arm he's really a bird so that's where the totem idea um, comes from but my research looking at not just the isolated images of of Bientre on these tombs but looking at the whole composition and where we see him, you notice a few things. And one of the things that one can notice is that he's generally very high on these registered. So there'll be panels and the lower panel will be human life. It'll be uh, something about the deceased. If the deceased was was an official, they'll show him on sort of a, you know, a throne or a high place. And they'll have maybe these kitchen scenes. And then they'll have sort of going up the levels, literally. Um, you'll have different types of culture bearers. You'll have legendary figures. And then at the very top is supposed to be some sort of celestial realm. It may or may not have been the afterlife. Sometimes there were two levels. There was the afterlife that the deceased would sort of ascend into and above whatever afterlife one might be in. There was an even sort of higher celestial realm. And often that had uh, Mu, you know, the, um, the, the, the queen mother of the West. Bientre is always in those higher levels. And even though, of course, there can be layers of meaning, and there, as I said, there is one relief that it actually, to be honest, doesn't say Bientre, it says Sanchre. It, it actually just refers to the bird part, you know, the mountain magpie. So because of the relationship with medicine and stones, and he even appears to be taking a pulse, there's a relationship between this image and the art of medicine. However, you don't know what came first. So with other people like Sun Tzu Miao or you know, Zhang Zhongjing, there were clearly historical figures that were deified. And then you have temples to those deities. And the progression is very clear. So with Bianche, the question is, well, maybe it's just that this person lived so long ago, we don't have records. And then later... He became deified and then was put on these Han Dynasty stones. But I think that's actually not the most plausible explanation. First of all, I've asked you know, people who, who research tomb, tomb art, right? Han Dynasty tomb art. I say, well, you know, you have legends, you have gods, you have other symbols, and they do vary a little bit regionally. You have these on these Han, Han tombs. 
you know, how long do you think something needs to circulate before people feel like it's important enough and recognizable enough? So artists, there were, there were actually these workshops where people would produce these things. Obviously, they were using symbols that the family of the deceased commissioned and that would be recognizable to other people that would see them. So how long does something have to be around before it's worthy of being carved into one of these tomb relief, reliefs? And the, the answer is always, well, gosh, we don't know, <laughs> but certainly at least several hundred years that you're not going to find something normally um, innovative or new on, on, on these reliefs. So I think it's also possible, possible that the deity came first because you find these in uh, this region and, you know, the explanation that, well, they had the bird or different kinds of birds as their totems. And so when this clan of healers became known and became known as very effective and perhaps invented new technology, if you will, through stones and, and bien stones, which uh, come from a place called Sixian. Um, they come from this place in, in Shandong province. It's probably more likely that it was the other way around, that you had a deity that was associated with life and death. You had this image, as you're suggesting, that is, is related to birds and birds in China were also very much related to um, sun worship and the cult of the sun, which you find, of course, also all over the world because it relates to, to life. You probably had the deity first. And then later, through a process which we can't necessarily uh, describe through, through texts and has been you know, lost through oral tradition, then later... Uh, you have this method of healing that somehow is associated with um, this deity. And that's, that's kind of the, the mystery of it as it stands. There, there's still a lot of unanswerable questions. Of course, it's lost in the mists of time. In having this conversation with you, what, where my mind is going at this moment, I'm I'm so glad we started off talking about curiosity because that's such good fuel for any endeavor. It's reliable. It's reliable fuel for any endeavor. Talking, uh, first of all, the idea that this could be a clan of people makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, individual people do make impacts on the world, but, but a group of people has more sustainability. And I'm, I'm even thinking of in more modern times, like the Mangha clan, right? Where, you know, you've got your group of doctors in Zhejiang province. You know, there's, there's these different communities of people who get an idea about something or they, they discover something or they become known for something because they, they figured it out. People talk about them. Their methods get passed on because their methods are effective, and so people want to learn that. So the idea that there's that there's a clan, there's a group, there's a uh, more than one person who has developed something, and it's been useful, and so it gets written down, and so people talk about it. That makes a lot of sense to me. The other thing that I find very curious about this is that you said this could be an alternative lineage, that there is a 
stream of medicine. There's a current of medicine mm. that came out of things that Bientre had to say about medicine that perhaps right. was different than what Huang Di had to say about medicine. But for some, you know, for whatever reasons of history or you know, accidents of power or who knows what, Huang Di is what gets passed along. But Bientre, yeah, we heard about that cat, but we don't know much about him. He was the other team. That was Team B. Right. So that's a very sticky question, as you mm-hmm. can imagine. And people tend to have very passionate <laughs> opinions about it. So one of the, the longest works about this whole question is by a scholar named uh, Li Bozong. And he says, before the Song Dynasty, the question of the importance of Bian Shui was not a question. So the, the problem from where we stand today is that it's very hard to recreate and it's very hard to know the importance or lack of importance, not just of particular books, but of the ideas contained in the, in the books. So the extent, you know, Huangdi Neijing that we have is really from the, the Song dynasty. Now, if you analyze the, the grammar and the words and so on, it's, it's from the Western Han. That's not a problem. That the the compilation of the Huangdi Neijing primarily took place in the first century BC and the first century after. So sort of straddling the turn of the millennium there. Um, that's not a problem. But the original bibliographic reference to it talks about 81 chapters. And now we have something like 167. And if you go back and you try to say, okay, a scroll, you know, how many characters was a a scroll, however you figure it out, it was much, much less um, than what we have today. So we don't know what was added. And even more than that, the scrolls that are now, you know, compiled into books were later compiled into books. The scrolls probably circulated independently. That's uh, a pretty well uh, accepted conclusion. So that's why you find, for example, in the Huangdi Neijing, there'll be a chapter where it says all of the channels go to the heart, right? The direction of all the yin and yang channels is towards the heart. And then you have a, you know, chapters like the my um, idea where you where you see the understanding that you and I use today about the, the different directions of yin and yang, and the reason you find those kinds of contradictions or you find, you know, pieces of theory, all this stuff about ying and wei, right? The ying qi and the wei qi, that's a really rich theory in and of itself. And it's really not developed in the sort of uh, medicine as it's now taught in textbooks. You find all these contradictions because they circulated separately and there was no reason why anyone had to make them uh, not contradict each other, right? So when you think about Bian uh, Shui and the potential written record, there 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 are scholars who have looked anew based on the new excavated texts, and also really really sometimes you you find things if you're looking for them, or you don't see them if you're not looking for them, right? And so uh, looking at this, you can look back at the Huangdi Neijing and say that about 17 chapters. Uh, this is what Huang Longxiang, who's a professor here at the academy, um, are very are very related to Bian Shui. So a lot of the dialogues with uh, with Lei Gong, the Thunder God, are can be traced to what we think of as the the Bian Shui lineage. 
in recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So if I'm understanding this correctly, if we go and look in the Huangdi Neiching, mm. there are traces of the Bian Chia tradition that have been compiled into it. Because the Huangdi Neijing itself, as you say, and I think we all know, it's a compilation of, at times, very contradictory points of view. Yeah, and the way you figure that out is you can look backwards and forwards. So you know you have the Yellow Emperor's Classic from the Western Han. And so then you look forward to, for example, the Pulse Classic two or three centuries later. And there are a whole bunch of chapters that I included in my in my dissertation that say they are describing the pulse methods and the meanings of the different pulse diagno- diagnostic uh, parameters uh, from Bien Tre. So you look at those and then you look back at the Neijing and you can see the places where, okay, this sentence is almost exactly the same. So perhaps the author of the Pulse Classic centuries later, you know, had a different text that was a common ancestor to these two. And then, so that's sort of looking forward and backward. And then you can look at the new text that we've excavated uh, from Ma Wangdui and Zhang Jiashan, but also, of course, the new one in Sichuan. And that's extraordinary when you find pieces from those texts that match the Huangdi Neijing that we have today, then you can really start to put together the pieces of the puzzle. So the so Ma Wangdui is from the tomb was closed in 168 BC, and the new findings in in Sichuan, which are usually called uh, Tianhui or La Guanshan, they're from about 140. So very close in time, but from different regions. So slowly, as the the research on that comes out, we'll start to get a different picture of the different branches, the different strands that went into. Uh, certainly, first of all, what we think of as the Neijing today, but also to put together all these other texts, including some non-medical texts, and see, can we get a clearer picture of what the early medicine looked like, and maybe one that's not so prejudiced, if you will, or one that doesn't so rigidly look through the prism of what we've come to think of as the Neijing or the interpretations of it by later commentators. Really fascinating. Such interesting work you're doing there. All because of an airplane ticket. 
<laughs> right? You can look at it that way. <laughs> so I'm curious, and this is speculation. Mm-hmm. Is it speculation? Maybe it's speculation. I mean, you're, you're very methodic. I mean, listening to you and having this conversation, I appreciate the scholarship that you brought to this. I appreciate the mind that you brought to this, the history, uh, you know, your understanding of medicine along with uh, your curiosity about, about the history. And again, scholarship. I mean, really scholarship. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question here, which, you know, is maybe more about conjecture. So I'm talking to you like more the doctor and, and the person who has lots of curious ideas. Okay, I hear you. If we could, if we could sit down with Bientra today, Mm-hmm. What would Bientria have to tell us about practicing medicine? Okay, so first of all, if if we assume that there was a historical person, or even a, a, a group of people, okay. that that okay. that have this uh, jishu, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if yeah. We could sit down and have tea with them. We're going to sit down with the Bientria clan, talk mm-hmm. some medicine. What would they have to say? Well. What they, from from textual evidence, really kind of moving away from the more sort of shamanistic or even metaphysical aspects of the divine, if you will, the, the sort of uh, religious tradition of Bantra. But if we want to talk about the, the textual tradition, they emphasized the palpation of the, of the Mai and even though the pulse classic emphasizes sort of palpation at the wrist pulse, right? The, the earlier tradition that's associated with Bien Tre really talks about se mai, meaning color and pulse. So I think if we had uh, that sort of uh, ability to travel back in time or um, sorry, I can't help but think of it this way. If we discovered more texts, <laughs> if we had more books, then we would have probably more uh, details about how they used the hue, the color of the face, the color of the eyes, the color of the tongue, and the different sights on the body, certainly so much more than just the wrist, the, 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 the pulses on the neck and the ankle and the groin and so on. And uh, perhaps some very, very subtle palpation, perhaps closer to what my mentor, uh, Wang Jui, has done. It's, it's hard to say because when people talk about palpating the, the Mai in some of those early texts, they do suggest that you take your fingers and roll, that you press uh, that you sort of push up and down. So I don't, I don't know. There's some um, suggestion there that what they were doing might have looked like the, the channel palpation. Sure. I mean, after all, my could mean the pulse. My could mean the channel. Oh, well, we know it means the channel. I mean, that's not, there are very, very few places where it's ambiguous. Oh, well, it's ambiguous in the sense that it could be a, a site on the body that's identified as both like there's a pulsating vessel there and it's also a vessel that's used for either bloodletting or needling with stones so yeah so these were really hands-on practitioners i've never thought of it that way but yes we could we could consider these i'm just i'm just imagining into it here i mean they were very observation observation and using the the senses watching and looking and palpating 
Right. And this gets into dicey ground here when we start talking about, well, what about the metaphysical aspects? Because, you know, of course, that that gets squirrely quickly. Mm -hmm. But again, Bientre is considered this kind of mystical figure. I'm curious to know your thoughts about that side of it. It's not really textual. Well, people have looked at books like the the Shanghai Jing. I mean, there are certainly descriptions of deities that may be related to him that are part human and part bird. So there's certainly lots that one could talk about in terms of the, you know, there's sort of the Chinese myth of of Hou Yi, right? Shooting down the 10 suns, that there are 10 suns and they're oppressing humanity because of the heat. And Hou Yi comes and shoots down nine and leaves us with just one. And the images that you have of Bian Che on the tombs include this mulberry tree, which include, which, which is a symbol of the sunbird that represents the sun that remains that we need for life. And then at the same time, this mulberry tree is also like a ladder. It's, it's a bridge. So the placement of Bientre in these images really is very much uh, showing the, the half-human, half-bird Bientre as potentially um, a deity that comes more from the culture of immortals or that, that very early culture in Qi uh, and Lu in, in what's now Shandong province, where there are mediators, mediators between the human realm and other realms. And so it seems that in those images, that's, that's really what Pietra is, because he's always pictured at that level. He's either way up there with Shi Wangmu, or he's sort of on top of the mulberry tree, or one level above. So why, you know, why do you have this bridge between life and death, this guide, potentially, really, this sort of, because the, the tomb art is designed, I wouldn't say for comfort, <laughs> but it's designed to be a guide, it's designed to be a map on a certain level. And so you have uh, this, this, this figure there that can help the deceased. I mean, they have uh, chariots sort of of people taking the deceased to the Yellow Springs or to other aspects of the, the afterlife. And so then Bientre is there as a guide. And at the same time, he's performing a medical act. If you don't want to use the word medicine, then certainly an act of healing. Well, medicine is often, I mean, it could be, like you said, mm -hmm. medical act, but medicine can be something as simple as bandaging a wound, or it could be something as profound as helping to heal a spirit. Right. Well, helping someone die, for example, I think we would call that a form of healing, helping someone to die at peace. I mean, just to think about it in terms of uh, sort of modern practices that, that people still do. And then in, in this case, you know, actually helping someone get to the, the afterworld, that, that would have been part of it. But I mean, there's no reason to think that needling points had a role in in that process. I guess that would be a startling <laughs> and important question if one could ever find that there's, you know, why is there 
why is there this relationship between life and death? So coming back to medical literature, scholars are more inclined to just say that Bianchrea, as an extraordinary physician and in uh, sort of Qin and Han times, that was one of the main roles of a physician is to let us know whether someone was going to live or die. So they say, you know, that was, uh, you know, if you read the classical text, you can still see that, right? We sometimes kind of ignore that. But that was a, that was a big uh, a big function, and then the the stories that you find about Beatrice in the Siji also involve life and death. So I don't have an easy answer for that. Yeah, well, I I was not looking for an easy answer. I don't think there's an easy answer. I, I'm quite struck that his image shows up in tomb carvings. That that lets you know that like the Beatrice brand, so mm-hmm. to speak had something behind it, you know, like you were saying earlier, something doesn't show up on a tomb. Yeah, 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 that's very true that he, it was definitely a widely held and a a deeply held belief, as it were, or, or yeah, deeply understood legend, or he wouldn't be there. That's right. Yes. And I'm also thinking now all of a sudden about something we say in Chinese medicine all the time, Tian Dijian, right? You've got heaven, you've got earth. What pulls together, what ties together, like the mandate or the, you know, the image or the potential of heaven with the mm-hmm. three-dimensional reality of right. earth is human beings. And, and Bien Tre really seems to fall into this. I'm going to say, I'm just thinking this out loud right now, but he kind of falls into that human aspect that bridging aspect of heaven mm-hmm. and earth, he's, he's got feet like a human and some hands, and he's got the head of a bird. So he, in, in a very beautiful symbolic way, is also connecting heaven and earth. Right. And more specifically, you know, in cultural or historical context, you do have this, this culture of what we might call early Taoism, but more maybe more accurately, Huang Lao thought and the immortal sort of techniques or practices related to that area. So he seems to be associated with those lineages in some ways, perhaps. You know, early on in my research, I went to see someone at the 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 China Museum here, you know, near Tiananmen Square. And I'm not sure what my my classmates said to get me an audience with this person, but he clearly didn't tell the person that, you know, this this foreign woman is going to show up on your your office door and talk to you about being tre because he looked very surprised when he saw me. But this this person who I won't name, but he's you know really top in his field. He uh, he he met me at the gate and kind of let me in the back door of the museum and we sat down and talked about being tre. And he said that he really thinks honestly that this was probably a regional deity. He thinks that the, the myths and, and the legends uh, are very uh, regional in nature. Now, you could argue against that because you're finding these, these images in what, what used to be uh, Qian Lu in Shandong and Jiangsu. And then now we have these findings in Sichuan. But we know that the occupants of, of the grave, the corpses they found in the, in the tomb in Sichuan, are from Chu in the south. And so if you can kind of picture that, you have uh, something in terms of a textual tradition anyway, traveling from Qianlu in Shandong uh, down to Chu in, in the south. 
and then all the way out west to Sichuan. So, you know, sort of how do you put these two things together? It doesn't mean necessarily that the images are not strictly regional, but they seem to have had a wider currency because of the relationship of the name to all of these different texts, because you find the, you know, Bantress said all the way out there in Sichuan. Well, and it seems to me this, in many ways, is the natural history of development of human societies and human thought, which is that a good idea shows up somewhere and it gets some traction and other people start to cotton to it. Or maybe people who are part of a a tradition, they move somewhere and they share that idea and other people caught into that. And so it spreads. Good ideas tend to spread. Right. There's reason to think that even though we have pretty good evidence now that different techniques and the theories behind those techniques very much developed regionally, there was a a process, you know, a non-linear, rather messy process of them being, being blended into what we at least recognize as a single tradition today. So we know that uh, massage and different, perhaps gua sha, those sort of work that we do on the sinews came from the South. And some of the earliest decoction traditions, that part of the herbal medicine came from the West. And then uh, the nine needles came from a certain place. And we think that this type of needling early on with bian shi came from this area that's associated with these images of bian shi. Because I would like to say there's there's indirect evidence of activity in this area. And this is uh, this area of Shandong. And of course, this is something controversial. You know, sometimes people kind of um, are cynical. <laughs> They'll say, you know, the, I just read a translation of something and they said, oh, you know, some scholars have a cottage industry trying to prove the importance of Shandong in terms of the Bianche legend. But uh, the, the evidence is that uh, Chun Yi, the physician in the same chapter of the record of the historian, which was essentially the disciple of Bian Shui on some level, or one of the Bian Shui's, he was from Shandong, from, from, from Lini, and we, we know that, that's well established. And then the author of the Pulse classic, uh, Wang Shuhe, he was from Shandong, he was from a place called uh, Donggao, and then uh, Zhou Yan, you probably know is the the first person to really systematically write about the five phases. He was from the Jinan area of Shandong. And then the Bian Shi, the stones themselves, are from Si County in, in Shandong. And then you only find uh, these images there. So something was, was going on uh, culturally and, and perhaps politically and economically as well to support a set of ideas that later really became one of the the cornerstones of Chinese medicine. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking about in our modern world, if you want to go like to see a really, really good Western physician, well, you got to go to New York or LA or the Mayo (laughs) Clinic or, I mean, this is not, this is not a new thing. There are people who are extremely skilled at what they do. They often will gather together 
partly because they help each other get better at what they're doing. I mean, if you want to get better at something, you surround, your, your, you surround yourself with people that are better at it than you are, or at least at mm-hmm. your level, but sure. ideally a little bit better because right. then you get better. You all get better when you push each other. And so I can see how these kind of concentrations of knowledge and skill and ability could happen. Because these kind of people gather together, and then the word spreads. So you might be down in the south, but you know about those cats up there in Shandong because they're famous, and they're usually famous for a good reason. Well, these these networks may have happened through all kinds of processes that we that that we don't know about, but certainly through the elite. If if you look at the records of who Chun uh, Yu treated. People have actually even just uh, in the last few years really uh, outlined that very specifically. And they were uh, supported sometimes through being given official positions, you know, in the bureaucracy and maybe sometimes just being um, supported as a physician to a particular, you know, marquee or count or so on. So definitely through the elite networks people would hear of extraordinary, extraordinarily talented physicians and then Know, request slash order <laughs> them to come and, and treat them and their families. Not much different than today. Interesting. Yeah, different different dynamics, different social system, but there's a parallel there. Sure. Different dynamic, but similar kind of thing. People who have resources tend to use those resources and they seek out the best resources they can acquire. Yes, yes. It's kind of how humans are. Wow. Well, I feel like we could go for hours chewing over Bientre, but it's it's time to wind it down for now, and I know it's getting late there in Beijing. Yes, I don't know if I've given a, a clear picture about the whole um, sort of controversy about Bientre and all the different aspects of it. I haven't translated my dissertation into English. In fact, I, I finished it eight years ago. Mm. I was thinking about that before we had this conversation. It would have been Right around this time, it's the, the middle of April, eight years ago, <laughs> that I would have gotten the good news that I, I passed anonymous review because you have to send out your dissertation without anything, you know, your name, your institutional affiliation or your, your supervisor's name. And you just send it out. to They send it out to three people in your field and they evaluate your work. So that's the hard part, actually, uh, because your committee will generally have already given you feedback and you make corrections that's the way the way it works so uh it's been it's been some time but the archaeological findings which have not been published by the way but when they when they do come out i do plan to return and at least select one one piece of this that i want to revisit Uh, and by the way for people that are interested the the photographs and the it's called the shuwen. So basically the transliteration of the bamboo slips that were found in Sichuan, uh, those, a book of those photographs should, should come out this year. So those who can read that stuff can read it. Right. And, you know, reading the original script is sort of one set of skills. It's something between a clerk script and an earlier script. But there'll, there'll be the modern Chinese and some annotations, and then perhaps uh, 
someone will eventually translate it, but certainly pieces of it will be will be translated as as uh, as people begin to write about it. And there'll be a special edition of Asian medicine that I'm contributing to, and uh, Donald Harper, Vivian Lowe are the main editors, and Dolly Yang is working on that, and uh, and that will come out then probably early next year with a set of articles about those findings. So we can look forward to some scholarly perspectives and some good scholarship, good hard work that will give us hopefully some access into these other aspects of our tradition. It's already such a rich tradition. And uh, thank you for this conversation for one. It's got me thinking about all kinds of things and, uh, and for the work, I hope I get a chance to read it someday. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I think, there's always a question that arises about why should practitioners care about history? And that's a valid question, I think. I think sometimes people are just curious about the origins of our medicine. Many, many people have expressed that to me. Sometimes people are hoping for something actually clinically useful and can happen or often often doesn't. But I do think that sometimes we get indirect inspiration when we learn about the actual original texts, some of the original healers, um, some of the original social networks that people were working within. And I, and I think those things can inspire us in, in a sort of indirect way, or at least I hope so. I have found for myself, and, and I mentioned this earlier, when we're talking about airplane tickets, all the best stuff in my life has come from the periphery. Mm. All the best stuff has come not because it was it was condensed and solid and straightforward, and here's ABC of how to do it, but it somehow sparked a curiosity. It somehow sparked an inquiry that led me to asking questions I would have not otherwise asked. And that, I think, can be incredibly useful. Good questions tend to be enlivening, and they tend to open us up to perspectives that we then have an opportunity to discover for ourselves how things might work and how they might be helpful in, in the work that we do. Right. And I really invite everyone that's interested in, in history to, to really take a look at, at what's come out in the last 10 years or 20 years, really. I graduated from, from school in the year 2000, and a, a lot of things have come out in, in English since then. For example, uh, there's a book called uh, An Illustrated History of Chinese Medicine, with Linda Barnes and uh, T.J. Henricks as the editors. We can actually, of course, put these on the website. But I think that uh, more accessible works have come out in the last uh, 20 years that allow the general reader or your sort of average practitioner of Chinese medicine to be able to learn something authentic and historically accurate, you know, and that has a certain sophistication. Sounds great. We'll be sure to put those up on the show notes page. So, Shelley, thank you again so much for this time. It's been an absolute delight to take this journey through, uh, through the mists of time. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show. What Shelley said about Bientra being representative of another stream of medicine, one that is 
parallel to that in the Neijing, it reminds me that there are so many different approaches to health, life, medicine, and living. The plurality of Chinese medicine is one of its strengths. It is also one of its deepest challenges. So often it comes down to having an inquiring mind that allows us to stand firm in what we know, and at the same time, remain open to new learning. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.